This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show former SBS operator and co-founder of Through Dark, Anthony Staz Staziker. So in this second conversation, we discuss a host of topics, From his experience both personally and business-wise through the pandemic, the Afghanistan withdrawal, extreme weather clothing, jiu-jitsu, reorg, 7X, 
his new book, The Hard Road Will Take You Home, SAS Who Dares Wins, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, I do love reading your feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. Because this is a free library of over 850 episodes now, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back onto the podcast, Staz. Enjoy. Well, Staz, firstly, I want to say thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast again. We just met face-to-face finally in Dubai, of all places, so we'll get into that. But I also want to say thank you for your patience. I can't get my camera to work every time you see me um, upside down. So <laughs> as we record Maybe. this, you're doing this blindly to uh, a blank screen right now. Uh, and for those that do know you will actually attest that that is uh, a blessing in disguise for me that I don't have to stare at your your beautiful <laughs> face. Um, uh, no, but uh, mate, I'll also start with some thank yous as well. Thank you um, for getting me back on and allowing me the kind of platform to kind of tell my story and the story of, of Through Dark and everything else. And um, as you suggested, it was great to finally meet as well in person in Dubai recently. So I'm excited to get stuck in, mate. So when we recorded first, it was you and Louis came on together. And just as you pointed out before we hit record, it was a while ago and it was actually February 2020. So for most people Correct. listening, that was quite a pivotal moment. I'm pretty sure that we were maybe aware of it slightly, but not quite in it yet. Um, you had transitioned from the military. Now you're an entrepreneur. You know, Walk me through what that looked like through your eyeballs specifically. <laughs> Yeah, I guess for people, uh, for some context and a little bit of backstory. So um, who am I? You know, uh, Anthony Stasica, I've served 13 years in the British military. I spent my first three years in the Royal Marines. I was a Royal Marine sniper. Uh, And then for the last sort of 10 years of my military career, uh, my more formative years were spent in the UK Special Forces uh, and very similar sort of timings to Louis as well. And Louis is a very good friend of mine, Louis Tinsley. Uh, he's also the co-founder of Through Dark, um, a technical outdoor clothing and apparel company, which we both founded in 2018 when we left the military. So between us, combined sort of military services of about 26 years, uh, both in the SPS, Special Forces. And yeah, we've been kind of at this um, technical outdoor clothing market now for the best part of five to six years. So with that being said, that's leading us up to um, you know your, your transition out, which which the first conversation you know we had a great chat and, and you you kind of led us through your military journey, but now we're talking you know you me and Louis um, you've you've made this bold jump you've got this extreme weather clothing company and then the pandemic hits so as entrepreneurs and as you know boyfriends and and parents and all these other things that we become what was that the impact of the pandemic for you personally? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's quite a bit um, to, to unpack there. I guess, you know, if we if we sort of try and chop this down a little bit, so it's just for myself, really, um, 
because I'm a simple person. I guess when we left the military, you know, I guess it's especially from people with our backgrounds and our skill sets, you know, our most likely kind of course is to move into highly paid, um, good positions within security and close protection, which we did for a bit. You know, we were working some very well um, sort of cherry picked jobs within the NFL and NBA and doing the kind of Super Bowls and all this kind of stuff, which was great. But, you know, our idea and our focus was all around through dark and, and the technical clothing company. So I guess when we left, we sort of pumped all of our kind of energy and effort and passion and into through dark and into the business. And then from there, you know, this is, we're talking sort of 2017, 2018. Um, what starts out as a bit of an idea and a, and, and a dream, I guess, um, very quickly starts to grow. And uh, I say quickly, these six years have, you know, have been nothing but hard, hard yards and hard graft, you know, to kind of get into the position that we're at now. But back in the day, it's no too dissimilar to any startup story, you know, in terms of an idea is born and then you kind of put pen to paper, we go into the planning phase and we kind of treated it like a bit of a military operation at the time, you know, whiteboard, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, we sort of just get going out of the, out of the gates, you know, we're at 2018, 19, we're a couple of years in, you know, we, we do the podcast with yourself and it's gathering momentum and traction across social media and website and the business is doing okay. Um, you know, it seems to be working. We're kind of out of the gates, but we're, we're by no means kind of in sort of uh, fresh, uh, safe waters. You know, there's it's still very, very turbulent time in terms of business uh, and how long that we've been operating. And you still have that niggling. I still have it now, but you have that niggling sort of thing in your mind about, you know, is it is the business going to work? Does it work? Is it is it going to last? You know, is it a flash in the pan? Is it something that's substantial that people are really resonating with? And you know, we're just getting everything sorted from production and you know finding our feet in the business world and and, and everything else. And we're about six people strong uh, in terms of you know personnel at Throughdark. Uh, with a few more people working downstairs that are, are sort of servicing the goods in and out. And then, yeah, to your point, it was straight into a fucking pandemic, which was definitely not on the on the whiteboard. You know, we kind of like to think that we we uh, we never leave a stone unturned and we're, and we're always looking at options and what if and solutions. And, and business is like that, isn't it? It's constantly... Uh, you know, you're, you're constantly um, looking at solutions, you know, there's just problems and problems and problems and it's just solutions day in, day out. And some days, you know, the problems are small and some days uh, it's a combination of small and big problems. But the pandemic in particular was was pretty, uh, pretty monstrous in size and scale and in terms of what it did, not just to us as a business, but the whole fucking world. And that affected us from the basic things as, you know, the majority of our products at the time uh, were made in Italy, you know, in Milan. And that area uh, got hit, you know, very, 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 very hard. Um, so there was a moment where we were almost kind of running out of uh, product, you know, and if you haven't got a product to sell, you know, you don't have a business. Um, so that kind of seesaw was going back into the, into the, you know, the wrong direction. And, you know, we have all the stress and everything else that's going on around that as well in terms of the business. And it was such a personal moment for us because, you know, we were we were gathering traction. We were doing well. But at the same time, it was it was worrying and stressful because we at the time, as we were going through that, we didn't know where the end goal was, you know, and and that's fine. And you can plan and, and mitigate and think about everything else. But when you don't know when something will end that could potentially, you know, 
finish the business or at least put the business on ice if it's not cash flow correctly then that that is very very worrying so yeah the pandemic was um was a difficult time but that being said james we we actually pivoted and worked quite well through that transitional period it's probably more luck than judgment but we just had a huge amount of stock land you know we we put a lot of cash and energy and effort into the growth of the business um through our you know our investors and everything else and we were in a good position going into the pandemic or as good as we could have been at the time in terms of stock you know the website was still up and running the social media platforms were still up and running and the majority of our demographic were you know um still working and being paid but had maybe potentially a little bit more free time and free cash and also were now seeing the benefits of what the outdoors was doing for them you know physically but more importantly uh, mentally as well so a lot more people were kind of then made more aware of their physical fitness um you know really kind of highlighted people's um their health and the outdoors you know we couldn't travel so more people were getting outdoors locally to themselves so you know we just pumped a little bit more sort of money uh, into paid advertisement etc cetera, etc cetera, and we're a little bit more loud and proud across social media platforms and actually we saw you know sales improving but then to my original point we did have that moment of you know we can only sustain this for so long before we get to the point of we have no stock you know, so um, definitely a very, very challenging period in True Dark's, um, in True Dark's sort of, it is in the infancy, the first couple of years. Well, you hit on the fact that some people had the realization about their own health and, you know, getting outside when it hit over here. And I was very lucky. Florida was very, um, uh, I'd say sensible is the only word. They took it very seriously at the beginning. Everyone kind of locked down. But very soon after that, they started doing you know analysis literally week by week and opening things back up again. I think it was fantastic. And you know our, our deaths, as many retirees as we have, were actually a lot lower than some of the places that locked everyone down. What was the message that you were getting in the UK? Because for me, everything that we needed to improve our natural health in America was kind of, it was the opposite. They told people to stay indoors. Um, you know, the gyms were closed, the the restaurants were closed, I and mean, all the things where people have community, fitness, time in nature, outdoors, etc., were closed down, but you could get fast food and alcohol delivered to your house. So um, to me, that couldn't have been further from creating resilience in a population to beat a virus. With you specializing in, you know, in, like you said, outdoor clothing, extreme weather, etc., what was your lens on the wellness element of how it was handled? I mean, it, it may have been handled brilliantly from where you saw, but uh, you know, what was your perspective? It's a very good question, um, James, and it's actually something I've not mentioned or spoke about in great detail, especially not publicly. Um, so I'll probably get vilified because, and I want to precursor this before everybody sort of jumps on the fucking bandwagon. You know, I am not a virologist. I'm not a fucking medical expert, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm a former special forces operator. You know, I only have my own experience and, and life experience to lean into. But, um, I think initially it was, it was worrying. It was what is going on. We had, we're in that initial sort of understand phase of what is this? And, you know, it, the panic that ensued and the mainstream media were as always to to blame for, for a large majority of this but i'm kind of like you i'm quite sort of um, analytical and data driven in kind of my decisions um with a little bit of uh, my own um, tempered with a little bit of my own experience as well now 
because it was such a hot topic and it and it was um so prevalent across across everybody's kind of lives at the time i just spent hours and hours reading and digesting information on podcasts and and i was always quite um aware or self-aware that the information i was receiving was nuanced so it wasn't just leaning one way or the other and i would also formulate my own opinions uh, on the data or the information that i was hearing or seeing you know and reading and listening as well you know i think the worst thing that we 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 um one of the you know, there's a lot of things now and listen i also want to carry out this whole um moan i guess that i'm about to do with you know everything's always fucking easier looking back isn't it with hindsight you know and you can you can say that about a lot of things that have happened in the past you know uh, from war to you know other um, issues that we've had uh, across the world across the globe that have touched you know hundreds thousands millions of people but this was such a big deal you know i thought that it it required investment from myself personally to really understand what was going on you know and there are so many things that were just ridiculous in terms of what they did, you know, and especially now, you know, looking back, you know, a few years on, a couple of years on, just to sort of, with everything that's that's coming out at the moment, and the inquiries are currently going on at the moment in the UK as well, you know, but there is, I think once you scratch the surface, and, you know, I'm not a fucking tin hat wearing conspiracy person by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, let's be honest, a lot of these things that were, conspiracies have now turned out to actually not be conspiracy, you know, and things that there's been a lot of truth that has come out as well in terms of, you know, the, the, the vaccines and the application, but also mandating these things as well in terms of, uh, of who was to receive these and why. And it caused a huge divide in the UK, you know, from it was the, 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 the vaccinated versus the anti-vaxxers. you know vaxxers. And, and, and listen, I'm not anti-vaccine. I've, I've got vaccinations. I've had to have vaccinations throughout my whole life and military career anyway. So, but for me, the way that it was moving so quickly and where the evidence was pointing, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, I'd, I had COVID, I caught COVID. And, it, and fortunately for me, you know, I, I had little to no effect. You know, I lost a bit of taste and smell, but I was actually running around the mountains at the time up in Wales. And I, I knew I had it, I tested, and I had lost my smell and taste, but I was actually fine, you know, in terms of fitness. Now I get it, there's underlying health conditions and there's all those things that, you know, um, uh, that affect the way that people react to this. But from what I was seeing, from my personal experience and people that I could see within my network that were, were getting COVID, that were affected by it, it didn't seem as bad as the media were portraying. And a lot of the things that we looked at, we knew the government were lying about certain things, you know, and we also now understand and realize that there's bigger plays going on in terms of the pharmaceutical industries and who owns and runs what and how it's connected to everything else, you know. So it's a very difficult, complex, nuanced, like the, the, the whole topic and discussion, you know, it, it's probably, um, uh, but I, I'm also conscious that it does deserve this time. I don't think we should be pushing it under the carpet and brushing it and, you know, and then onto the next thing and onto, oh, it's Ukraine now and, oh, it's Gaza and it's, oh, let's move on to the next thing. It's like, no, 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 we still need to go back and address everything that happened. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, especially in the UK, they were mandating, you know, vaccines for service personnel, for, you know, the uh, NHS, so our, our uh, National Health Service, so doctors, nurses, and it caused a lot of issues and upset between people that didn't necessarily want the vaccine, but were voluntold to take it 
you know, and the ramifications were if you didn't, that you would lose your job and then would be unable to support your family, which is absolutely disgusting, you know. And I think now that we're in a position that we can look back and the information and the evidence is coming out that, you know, it's um, it's pretty damning, to be honest. So that's probably as far as I'll go in terms of a, of a rant. And we can we can unpick certain parts of that as well, you know, um, probably as we, as we move on. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you. I agree completely. When you said it's it needs to be revisited, it's a hundred percent. People are like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. it's politics. It's like, no, that's not politics. That's the health of the nation. And now, on the other end, this is what I've talked about since the beginning. The reason there's three podcast, three episodes a week, is when we when we hit the pandemic, and I was seeing all the scaremongering. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to put even more middle of the road you know, content that people can action, they can do in their own home, you know, fitness and nutrition and mindfulness and all the other things that we we talked about. But if it had been about the, the health of the nation and we had a captive audience for two years, Britain, Australia, the US, Canada, et cetera, et cetera, we'd all be healthier than we were in 2020. But obesity is getting worse. Mental health is declining. So you know, this is the thing. And, and like you said, I just I just saw uh, a L.A. firefighter just be terminated in December 2023 for not taking the vaccine back in whatever it was, 21, 22. And we know now the efficacy was basically no better than the placebo. You know, now it's, I've had an ER friend of mine who talked about, you know, where some of the, the vaccines seem to be helping people who are already very ill. Excellent. Great application. So, so it's a symptom reducer, not, not a vaccine. But to me, the conversation needs to happen because, for example, fire, police, military are struggling to recruit now because our pool of fit candidates is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So the health of the nation, the mental health of the nation, the security of the nation are still things that we need to be discussing because it wasn't remedied during the pandemic. Absolutely, mate. And I think that is the main point for me about this whole thing. What did it highlight mainly for me is... Um, is people's own physical and mental fitness and robustness, you know, to um, uh, to help alleviate any stress and anxiety and worry, you know, and 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 I think again, when you hear hooves, you know, think horses, you know, not zebras, and people say, well, it's okay for you, and you've not got this issue. And I'm not talking about those five percent, ten percent of the population that have genuine underlying health and medical issues and conditions. But there are a lot of people out there that are using that excuse that have no right to use that excuse, you know, um, in terms of staying mentally and physically fit, you know. And I, I take myself as an example here in training six, six, seven times a week at times, you know, and keeping myself physically fit is not only a priority for me personally, but also for my family. You know, I need, I'm a provider. I need to stay physically fit. I need to be the best version of myself. And as you suggested earlier, that the population, we've never been so unfit, obese, and all of these things. It was one of the, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it was one of the biggest issues and, and precursors to having um, worse con uh, conditions associated to COVID. You know, the, the main effect that it had on people was, was the people that were overweight. Now, if you're not in that small you know, substructure of people, the 5% crew, you know, okay, I get it. But the others have absolutely no fucking excuse other than, being lazy, you know, and not being accountable for their own physical fitness, which I know it seems hard. I know it seems harsh and a little bit too um, uh, maybe almost draconian or military style, but 
listen, there's days I don't want to get out of bed and fucking train in the morning and go running and, and, and do jujitsu or, or go to the gym. But I, but you, I, I don't see it as a, as a, as a want. It's a need. You have to do that. And I think for some reasons, you know, lots of different reasons and, and social media and the ease now of everything else, our lives are just becoming too fucking comfortable and too, too simple. And I think it's, it's a fucking tragedy. And people need to wake up to that realization that it's not supposed to be easy. You're not supposed to have food delivered to your fucking front door. You're not, so, you know, all these, you're supposed to sit and uh, sit still all day. You're not supposed to, you know, um, sit behind the fucking computer screen playing games. You know, get outside, challenge yourself and push yourself physically because that's the, you know, eat the correct foods, you know. It, but that takes discipline. And it takes, you know, consistency as well. So those two things, you know, combined together, you know, will set you up for success. And, you know, this isn't everybody. I'm not fucking blanket throwing this on everybody. There are people out there that are doing that and pursuing that life and, and obviously reap the rewards and benefit for it. So it's very difficult, you know, um, and I understand there's different kind of socio-demographic issues and people in different areas and, and everything else that don't have access to things, but... You know, there's always, always a way to get yourself away and get fit and get active and get moving. You know, food's a difficult one sometimes, you know, depending on, on where you are and, and, and kind of how much you earn, et cetera, et cetera. So it needs to be looked at. And the government just throwing fucking millions and billions of pounds into a stupid NHS app that didn't even work. You know, let's look at different ways that we can we can apply that government funding, you know, to help people. Absolutely. So I got a pretty un uh, unique perspective on the nhs something that i've and i love the nhs i think as a philosophy it is beautiful but i've watched it get torn apart by politicians you know the budget cuts and staffing cuts etc cetera, etc cetera. and those poor doctors and nurses and you know custodians and everyone else that was keeping the hospitals running you know we got outside and well we they got outside and clapped at you know what it was five five p.m and then went back inside you know it was like well i didn't give them any yeah. more staffing or beds or ppe um but i remember you talking about the the scaremongering from the media they're more going, there's people in the hallways. And, and I was like, as an American paramedic that's worked in most you know, cities, I'm like, we're always in the hallways. There's never enough beds. That's normal every day. So then, you know, we, we watch the pandemic, you know, again, the, the NHS are asked to do more with less. And then we come out the other end. So again, you're thinking you know, lessons learned. Like after 9 11, there's a lot of money that went into the military and to the first responders. Well, my dad has a chest pain, 81 years old gets taken to the hospital and the, the ambulance crew have to sit outside with him for nine hours until they've got a bed for him. And again, this, this, I mean, I'm watching the way this was done. The system is just, you know, that system in that particular hospital is obviously very mismanaged. Like some of the things that were going on, it just didn't make any sense at all. But again, this is the other side of the pandemic now. So this is what happens in some of these hospitals, but they were acting like normally you just walk in and everything's fine. And, you know, now this COVID thing, there's bodies everywhere. And so if we really, again, cared about healthcare, the NHS today would be staffed again and funded. But these, I mean, I'm not blaming any human that the ambulance crews were great. They actually had a shift change in the ambulance. That's how long they were sitting in the parking lot. Um, but, you know, it it's such an incredible system but again if we care that money should have gone into the actual nhs we shouldn't have a, a 99 year old war veteran walking just to try and give those poor people more money that's horrific mate you know um i completely agree with that as well it's, it's almost about who's making their decisions about where the money goes as well you know we built this fucking huge nightingale 
you know, um, hospital for an overspill of COVID patients that was empty, that didn't really get utilised. Or, you know, again, that was just millions of pounds panicked, thrown in, you know, and I mentioned earlier about the, the NHS app that didn't work. You know, millions of pounds were wasted. You know, think about supporting the people on the front line, the NHS, the workers, you know, the doctors, the nurses. There's certain people, I think, in society that need to be recognised um, for the great work that they do. And some of those people are the doctors and the nurses, you know, people that are, are doing um, care for the elderly. And then you've got teachers as well that are ultimately impacting the next generation. You know, so these kind of jobs should be prestigious. They are the prestigious jobs that have um, an impact on people when they need it most. And we're, for some reason, as a society, they're kind of, um, they're not highlighted in that, in that way. And they're also not recognized in that way and or um, paid in the correct, correct way as well. It, it's, I don't know, it just, it, it seems to make sense to me and it shouldn't be so hard to fix, but clearly it is. So when we uh, first sat down, kind of shifting to to a kind of more extreme fitness and mental toughness, um, you were, I think you had just been a number five on the SAS Who Dares Win show and you were the mole. Um, we When we met in Dubai, you were on your way to do the show again. So talk to me about the different role that you played in the show and what that experience was like this time. Yeah, it was probably the, the worst undercover mole in history. Well, I say that. So, um, so that was actually with, with Channel Four um, at the time. They asked me to come in um, to be uh, one of the recruits. So it's a, a ten-day um, course that they're filming, and for the first six days, um, I was the mole undercover, uh, acting as a recruit, so gathering intelligence for the DS that, uh, and reporting back to those guys. Now the viewers know, knew that I was the mole, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then on day six, I was then kind of. Um, released or, or um, shown to the others that, that actually I've been undercover and I'm, I'm a DS and I moved into a director staff role um, and then did the celebrity version after that. That was great. It was an amazing um, opportunity and learned a lot, enjoyed it, enjoyed the process, not so much the recruit part, but um, it was for through dark in terms of a marketing um, uh, channel was uh, really good. And then after that, we it was all a success on the show. And then left the show as the chief instructor. Um, I left. I was sort of back to through dark, you know, back to business as usual. And then uh, a year or two years later, I got a phone call, you know, from Anne and um, some of the people over at you know, Channel Seven uh, for the SAS uh, Australia version, uh, and had the call up to, to sort of see if I wanted to join Anne and Ollie Ollerton and Jay Morton as the director of staff on that show. And that's obviously where I was, I was actually transiting through Dubai to, to fly onto Jordan before filming uh, end of Feb, beginning of March. And, and that, that was incredible as well. You know, getting back in and, and working around the guys again was amazing because, you know, when you leave the special forces and the military, you, you do miss the guys. You know, that's the biggest thing that you do miss, that camaraderie and that bond and, you know, being around that energy constantly is something that, you know, I probably miss the most and, and that and, you know, obviously some of the high octane jobs and, and everything else. But, you know, so to have that sort of small, um, feeling again uh, back in that environment was um, was was amazing. Now, did you work with um, Remy Adelaki and um, Rudy Reyes? No. So those guys, I think when when Ant left the Channel Four bit and, and, and obviously continued with the Australian version, uh, those guys then moved into the UK version. So that crossover for me personally never happened. You know, I, I've met um, Rudy. I've not met Rem. I don't think. No, I haven't met Remy. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of two different channels, two different programs, essentially, um, both sort of shooting the very similar, same sort of structured content in terms of SAS who does wins. 
It was interesting talking to Ricky Nuttall. So he was one of the firefighters, the London firefighters that responded to the ground. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a uh, a very, very powerful story. Really, um, I think opened some doors when it came to be able to talk about mental health in the British fire service, at least. But I know he was um, on the show and this would have been during COVID. And he was talking about the isolation that they had to have that, you know, whatever it was, 10 days in a hotel room, um, that he was forced to be alone with his thoughts. And so the fire that burned in him to want to do the show, by the time he actually got in to do the show, he'd almost like healed, like that fire wasn't burning anymore. So that was kind of his perspective of that one. What were you seeing as far as backstories or common denominators between the the recruits that seemed like maybe on day one they were going to do well you know maybe they were very athletic or they had that thing about them and who and which humans actually were you know the ones that succeeded at the end of it yeah it's a great question and you know with regards to ricky as well in particular i was a recruit with ricky we were on the same show so i know exactly what he's talking about it was filmed up in the isle of sky up in scotland so the very northern kind of tip of scotland so we're in the middle of nowhere and we had to go uh, do a 10-day quarantine period we were obviously uh, tested um looking back now it's 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 a joke isn't it but we were tested kind of twice through that 10-day period to make sure that we were we were clear um and then we could go on to the filming and sort of everybody was in that bubble that was cleared and tested and, and we could then film and, and crack on with the show um Ricky was a funny one. Obviously, I was doing the, the stuff as a recruit, so I was in the same hotel as them, and we were allowed out once a day to do uh, physical exercise, uh, or twice a day. You could have a, a walk or a run for an hour or something like that. So sort of still getting out into the hills and, and mountains and running and, and keeping physically fit and moving. But yeah, to his point, for the most part, you were in your room on your own. You know, That being said, you had your phone. You, know, you could ring, ring home and you're on social media, and I was just doing work and still speaking to the team back there and et cetera, et cetera. But I actually had every recruit's report in front of me. So I was just kind of reading up on each person individually, just getting the kind of backstory and trying to understand them before I went into the show as the mole to try and kind of um, understand them more, but also have a point of contact that I could naturally sort of um, segue into conversations, et cetera, et cetera. But Ricky, for me, had a, an amazing story, you know, part of the Grenfell fires and firefighter, uh, clearly very physically fit. I didn't realize what he was quite going through mentally at the time. Um, but when we started filming the show, for me, he was one of those guys, you know, he had a great character, great personality. He was clearly a leader, you know, and I saw him as, as one of the front runners. I thought, you know, this guy's going to be up the front. He's, he's going to be finishing, you know, at the top, you know, bar some sort of um, injury or, or illness that would take him out. And how, how wrong I could have been. I didn't realize, but it makes sense now from what you've just said, that the reasons why he went onto the show and that isolation period, what it enabled him to do in terms of his own healing and understanding. So when it came to filming, he was kind of like, shit, I've, I've got everything I came here for personally. And to carry on with the show is, is I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. Now, I'm not sure if I agree with that. You know, for me personally, I, and I, I do get it and I understand it from his point of view. And what's the point in carrying on if, if, you're, if you feel like you you gained everything that you wanted to or achieved everything you wanted to achieve, you know, pre going on the show. But I just think he would have got even more from seeing the course through. You know, you never know what else you're going to learn unless you keep going and walking and opening those doors. You know, to say that 
you know, that's fine. I've been locked up in a, in a room for 10 days and wow, I've had an epiphany moment and, and that's me. I'm not so sure, you know, and I've told him about that as well, you know, to, uh, and I messaged him after like, I just think that he could have gained more from carrying on and maybe seeing that course through. So I was a little bit disappointed with Ricky for you know pulling himself off so early on in the course because I just think he was strong. He could have helped other people, you know, that were on the on the course as well. So even if you are sort of feeling better yourself, then why not remain and help other people out that aren't as physically strong as or as mentally strong as you to try and coach and, and help those people through. So sometimes it's not always about us uh, and about what we want. You know, sometimes we're, we're, we're the servant as well. And it's, and it's nice to sort of think, what can I do for other people? Now, I'm not, and I feel quite bad saying that. It's like I'm sort of cursing Ricky and his decisions. But clearly, you know, he had other things going on in, in his head at the times. And I've got massive respect for, for him, even in the, in the first instance, as I have anybody that goes onto that show, anybody that, you know, steps into the arena, into that world. It, it's very daunting. It's, it's unfamiliar. It's very challenging physically and mentally. Um, but I just think, you know, for me personally, I would have just kept going and I would have saw that course through just to sort of find out more about myself, you know, and that's what the course is designed to do. And everybody, back to your original question, everybody's on there for different reasons and everybody has different stories. And don't get me wrong, it's a fucking TV program, isn't it, James? You know, and, and they and they want to they want to play onto those angles and stories and backstories that people have. And it and it almost connects the audience to the show and to the people. Um, and it's designed specifically in that way, which I get. But yeah, I just think I was, so, I was just gutted, if I'm honest, personally, that um, Ricky sort of decided to leave um, so early on in the show. I love what you said about if you're doing well, then be there for others, because I think that really ties into the mental health conversation. I've, I had literally was talking to Tip Cullen yesterday. I don't know if you cross paths yeah. with Tip. Um, I and he, uh, you know, one of his his things is like up to this point, he. He hasn't found himself in a dark place, you know, really dark place. Um, and I've said the same thing. And when I look back, you know, there is a spectrum of healthy coping mechanisms that were infused into my childhood just by accident. So I am no better or no worse than anyone else who has struggled more, struggled less. It's just, you know, as many traumas as I had when I was young, I, I grew up on a farm. My dad was a vet, so he was healing animals. You know, there was nature and sunshine and you know, cold and suffering and all the things that, that, you know, factor into, to hopefully forging resilience. But so if you're doing well, then it's up to you to then help other people and raise them up. So of course, like you said, at that moment with Ricky and his decision, I probably wasn't factoring in, but the number of people that I know that have really succeeded, and I'd say myself included, I think what got me through fire academies was trying to help the people that were struggling that really want to do it, not the ones that weren't trying. I mean, fuck those guys, they can they can quit. But the people that really, <laughs> really were trying and just needed a little extra help, I would focus on being there for them. So I, I love I love what you said because I think that applies to mental health. It applies to you know selection and boot camp and fire academy, all those other things. If you're doing okay, then fucking find someone else to help. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, just to uh, sort of reiterate that point you know uk special forces selection is probably the hardest job interview in the world isn't it but there are mo listen that is the, the most physically and mentally exhausting process that i've ever been through in my life you know probably now going into business more you know mentally as well but certainly physically you know you you push yourself you know far and beyond what you ever thought you were capable of achieving and 
there are moments on you know i just remember thinking back now it sort of almost makes me shudder in the jungle where you are on the ebbs of, of sort of existing you're just some days you are just existing and you can't think further than 10 seconds ahead you know and and you just have and everybody has a bad day you know which can turn into a bad week and and, and on those moments in selection that's where you really find out who the right people are you know and it's a massive part of it isn't it so the hills phase it's more you know you're on your own it's the physical navigating with heavy packs on your back from point a to point b are you physically and uh, uh, mentally robust enough to kind of pass that phase you know at the required standards with the weight and the times that's then kind of your ticket then into the jungle you move into the jungle then you're in a four-man patrol and during that period that, and that's what they're really looking at it's like yes look you proved that you are physically fit and, and mentally robust but now this is a different operating environment but also can you soldier to a very high standard you know um within the jungle you know, it's a very difficult uh, environment to to operate and soldier in but also how do you react when you're absolutely at the end you know at the end of your teller you're you're so fatigued and tired and malnourished and have no sleep and but who are you as a person? It really, it really fucking scratches or it makes you remove those masks so that all that's left is a, a true reflectional version of you as a person. And that's when you see who people are. And, and that's what I'm trying to get at here, you know, to that point is to say that when I was absolutely fucked, I could still turn around and smile at my own sort of misery, uh, but also try and help people when I was having a good day. You know, a couple of days you'd feel a bit stronger or, you know, you're in a good place. You've had a good couple of days that then compound. You think, shit, I'm doing all right here. I've kind of turned a, a page. And now it's, you know, it's all about self-preservation. But at the same time, if you can help somebody that you feel is deserving of help, you know, then then absolutely you get a good feeling from that as well. And, and it's well received. And then when you need the help, it then gets reciprocated and comes back around full circle. So I do think there's a lot there's a lot in that. And I sort of hope that I've continued to carry that on through my military career and then also now into business and in, in my personal life as well. Well, speaking of suffering, in February, you and I met in Dubai in a, was it a Brazilian steakhouse, I think it was. Um, and that was part of 7X. I know that I, I connected you with, with Ryan. Um, both of you are yeah. incredible human beings. You donated a lot of gear which is actually going to get worn this February. I'm not going with them because I'm I'm uh, I owe my son some some parent time. Um, so we won't be I won't be there at, actually at Antarctica when they do that that final run. But uh, you know, as we sit here now, as I showed you, I'm wearing a through dark sweatshirt. So talk to me about that relationship and and what Seven X was like for you from the outside looking in. Yeah, I get. Well, geez, before that, you played a right blinder there, James. Pick it. Oh, sorry, guys, I can't make the Antarctica one. I, I see what you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like your style, mate. Yeah, I can't do the freezing cold one, but I'll do the uh, Dubai uh, version. <laughs> they they said they don't need. It. They they're almost spinning in there because they said that they owed it to us, and I'm like, you don't owe me anything. It's more it's more the the fact that to get there, it's going to take multiple days before, multiple days after, and you know, for I think it was four hours on the ice. So the athletes will do, you know, they'll do the skydives, they'll. Do the runs but the rest of us it was like a tourist excursion yeah. and i'm like i think i Jeez. think my son would probably prefer i spend a week with him yeah. than five hours on the ice yeah good good call mate um so yeah 7x and again thank you for that for that introduction there and i love these kind of things these little links and networks and uh, and door opening for people and these opportunities um, um I'm, I'm a massive fan of this and you know ryan you know birdman what an incredible human uh you know 
and a person that I've kind of get to, I've gotten to know again over the last couple of years and stay in touch with and everything that he's doing there with the 7x and raising awareness and the um, and the charities and and everything else is just phenomenal you know so immediately when that connection was made for, for, for myself and Louis and through dark it just seemed so natural uh, and authentic incredible for us to get involved with you know w- where we could and for us it was it was the clothing element so obviously we're a, we're a technical outdoor clothing brand so when the kind of project was was put forward to us it was like wow how can we support you know how where and, and, and when and to what degree can we support this, this incredible um project and that was amazing for us to kind of go through that process as well and really understand where you were going what you were doing and kind of again where we could hopefully just add a little bit of value and, and um, alleviate, alleviate as much kind of stress and pressure for the guys in terms of their technical kit and equipment that they were wearing on task. Yeah, well, I can tell you people absolutely loved it. And I think they're going to get the most value, obviously, when they when they go to Antarctica with it being the cold weather gear. Um, one of the things that you also donated was the gi, your latest through dark gi. Um, on the recce for the trip so it would have been september of 2022 um i went down to uh plymouth and um hung out with sam and ben in the through dark you know hq down there rolled and i say rolled i got murdered by him and junior um <laughs> but it was it was phenomenal so talk to me about that relationship yeah so Sam is a former Royal Marine. I think he did 22, 23 years. Um, he was a physical training instructor within the Royal Marines. So the guys that used to run around in the, in the tight shorts and the vests, screaming at everybody to, to run faster. Um, actually, when I joined the Marines, that's what I wanted to do. I, I joined with the intention of becoming a physical training instructor, but then my sort of career changed. I'd become a sniper and then went into special forces. But um, yeah, Sam's an incredible person as well. You know, everything he's done, you know, just as he was kind of transitioning out, he was actually one of the first people to really start the ball rolling um, or at least plant the seed from the Royal Marines perspective for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and he was training while he was in uh, and really kind of being an advocate and, and sort of flying that flag and then when he left he set up a charity called Reorg. You know, Reorg help um, veterans, military but also first responders uh, in the UK and that has just blown up and gone huge you know so and, and I've used it in LinkedIn through Sam to other people that have been having issues and struggles from you know, military and police that I've known that I've put them in contact to um, local affiliated Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu academies uh, through Sam, you know, so it really does work and it has a, it, you can see the benefit of it. So it's not like a charity and that, like it's kind of here's a load of money to a charity that you kind of don't really sort of feel that you don't get to see what that result is. And with jiu-jitsu is completely different you know and and with that while we were talking through stuff you know at the time when i left um the special forces and set up through dark i was still continuing to train i physically trained so running and the gym and everything else because it was obviously an integral part of my life and, and will be till like till the day i fucking i can no longer let my arms or my legs fall off but I, it really helped me massively mentally with the stress and everything of leaving work because for context when i left the military, it fucking hell, I was spinning some serious plates. I was going through a, you know, a divorce with, with my, you know, my, my wife at the time and my, my eldest boy, that, you know, this, we'd been together a long time, 13 years, and we were just completely different. That was that marriage, that relationship broke down, unfortunately. And, you know, if we look at it, it's it, the precursors of being in the military and everything else. And we just completely changed. We got together really young and we were just completely different people. 
So I, I was going through that. I was trying to leave the, the military. I was trying to set up a new business and a company. I was going for a financial settlement with her, which was just, I was stressed up to the eyeballs. And, you know, all this kind of anxiety and worry and stress and pressure of all these things compounded, it was, I just felt like I was, I was spinning multiple plates. And for me, it came at the exact the right time that I, that I needed jujitsu. I needed something that I could, um, focus my energy and efforts into that was wasn't just physical but more mental and jiu-jitsu is like that for anybody that does ju does um do jiu-jitsu you know that, that you get elements of that flow state again where you know i don't meditate i tried but i was terrible at it. and to be honest i probably just didn't give it enough time but for me jiu-jitsu was like the meditation part it was when you're on task that's all you think about and you know and and, and again to your point when you start it's you're just surviving so those kind of white belt periods and i mentioned this in my book as well about that white belt mentality and why it's so important but sam came down to through dark and was like look why don't you try jiu-jitsu and for me, I was like, oh, gee, Sam, I'd love to, but I just don't think I can. My fucking body, you know, I, at the time, a few years ago, I was, you know, I'm turning 40 in January, but I was 36, 37, and I was like, mate, my knees are fucked, you know, I've had operations. My back, I was blown up in Afghanistan in a vehicle, an IED, you know, uh, which compressed my spine, and I've had, like, bulging discs and herniated discs, and I was like, I just, I just don't think my body could do it and he's like well why don't you just try it see how much you can do see what you can and can't do you'll kind of adapt and and your own style and your own game around what your, your body can physically do so we did and and then yeah experienced probably all of the same things that you experienced when you came in and first rolled and i think it affects people in, in like one of like two ways you either go wow what the fuck just happened what was that i don't want anything to do with that and you run away or you go wow what the fuck was that i need to learn that and thankfully for me, it was it was the it was the more former, and it was like shit. I boxed, I kickboxed, you know. I I've done all this stuff in the military from an armed combat sort of stuff, and and it just it, it intrigued me massively. I was like shit. I need to learn that. And actually, my body, yeah, it felt like I'd been in a car crash, or you know, for the first kind of six months, and I sort of pushed and progressed through that. But I'm so glad that I've kind of stuck that out, and I've got um, you know a massive amount of respect and. And thank yous to to people like Sam and, and Mark Ormrod and all these other people that have, have really helped um, push jujitsu, but also the real uh, main mission as well to help other people. So, and I've seen that effect that it's had now with training and something that we offer at Three Dark for the staff to train, but also other people coming in and training as well. And you know, Nathan, our, our instructor as well, and that kind of positive impact that it's had. So yeah, jujitsu and Sam and Reorg have been an incredible part to that. But, you know, back to your original point again is, is the gi, you know, so you, you came down and I think managed to get one of our gis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was just laughing as well to myself, thinking, you know, anyone that goes into to Rio where Mark is there and say, oh, you know, I'm worried about my back. And then you look over and Mark's, you know, triple amputee. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry, what were you saying, little bitch? I didn't quite hear yeah, it. Cry me a river. Yeah, cry me a river. Well, that's perspective, though, isn't it? Again, there's days when I think, fuck, I feel tired today. I'm not sure if I can treat that little inner bitch that just speaks to you. And then, and then, yeah, you see Mark post up on Instagram that he just already crushed two, two workouts in the day. And you think, fucking hell, I'll, yeah, I'll get back to it. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. speaking of the gi, one funny story before I want to get to the, to the book next. Um, the gi that you gave us, we had all seven flags of the countries that we were going to be in sewn onto the gi. Um, you know, we had these big mats that were going and we didn't, I didn't think we realized that every time we got to a country, your there, there was some craziness where you had to like pull off a lot of your luggage 
and then keep it somewhere and then put it back on that night, even though you had chartered your own plane. It was really weird. So we had a big jujitsu mat, but it was so big that, you know, they just tried to leave it on the plane as much as we could. But we get to Cairo um, and uh, the morning we have this beautiful breakfast right by the pyramids. Then we skydive out of a Russian helicopter, land right next to the pyramids. <laughs> like a dream freaking thing for any anyone especially you know a, a quote-unquote alpha male i mean that's that's pretty badass <laughs> and bryce yeah. said hey let's try and let's try and roll in every continent we hadn't up to this point and we're like okay well he pulled the mat because we're going to do it in front of the pyramids and when i say in front it's not like where all the tourists are it's it's quite a ways away where the landing zone is for the uh skydivers anyway we get out the mat and he said that you know he'd ask someone they were like okay and and we just about to roll and the world loses their fucking mind. And we're like, what the hell is going on? Well, I don't think it mattered that we had the Egyptian flag on. It was the other country's flags on the gi. They took huge offense to it to the point where we're like, oh, shit, we're going to get hold away here. <laughs> like, look, look, we don't get we went and changed out of it again. And, you know, kind of it, it de-escalated. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was funny. So the gi itself was amazing, but the end we ended up going back to Dallas and then doing our biggest role then because uh, you know after Egypt we were like, all right, fuck this. <laughs> we don't know how offended people are going to get. Crazy, with us. Mate. But yeah, but but Egypt was on there. Like it was just a proud. This is the journey yeah. that. We're, but but yeah, they uh, they were so, not happy at all. So, so what you're saying is, don't go back to Egypt with the gi that you presented me with all the flags on. Or I'm going to get yeah. strung up. Yeah. Yes, okay. I would say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leave the Egyptian one if you want, but take the others off. <laughs> yeah, thank you, mate. So you talked about the book. Um, I know it's out in, in the UK now. It's going to come out here on February 6th. So what made you write the book and then kind of lead us through what people are going to find between the covers? God, yeah. So um, the book, yeah, The Hard Road Will Take You Home. Uh, it's the title of the book. Um you know, it's a strange one, isn't it? When you leave our kind of um, shadowy world of special forces and you kind of stick your head above the parapet. You know, we when we first started Through Dark, we were very conscious of, of what our kind of online uh, profile was. And you kind of go through this transition of, well, we, we'll just stay behind, you know, in the shadows and blur our faces. And, and then it got to a point about two years in when it was like, look, we are the brand, you know, this is our background, like, at some point, it feels like you're coming out of the closet. We're going to have to kind of show people kind of who we are. And we made that decision. It's a difficult decision as well from people of our background and not a decision you take lightly. So, you know, that kind of happened naturally through the kind of social media and the website and bits and pieces. You know, then you make the next sort of big, bold decision to then go on TV. And then it's kind of, well, my head's fully above the parapet now. Um and then I guess for the most part, you're just worried about what other people will think, uh, which is a real shame, isn't it, when you break that down? But I guess it's not worrying about what everybody else thinks. Uh, and I think you, you, we are right to worry if it's a trusted opinion and people that you respect. And, you know, and people in special forces are people that, you know, for the most part, I respect. So hence why we were so sort of tentative in our approach in terms of, of, of what we did and how we did it. And, um, you know, so... Going on the TV, we're now sort of six years in a through dark. We're all over kind of social media. Well, me, I'm saying we, me as well. And it then got, you know, I was then approached and, uh, and was through the agency and, and other people about what about writing a book? And at the time it was like, oh, I'm not so sure, you know. Um, but look, for me, I guess we'll start with, you know, it's a very long winded way of answering your question, but I just want to give context. And I think let's start with the why. Why did I want to write a book? Well, for me, when I was, you know, 
before I joined the military, I had a quite a promising football or soccer career that was lining up. I was playing for England schoolboys, affiliated with professional football clubs. You know, I also used to race motocross, had a pretty bad injury. I had rehabilitation on my knee, first game back, knee went again. And, and my kind of dreams and hopes and aspirations of being a professional footballer, you know, kind of ended. I then went to college. I started playing for British colleges, so representing the whole of British colleges. And I then got offered a, a scholarship to play in, in the United States, University of South Carolina. That didn't work out um, because they deemed me to be a professional. I filled out some amateur eligibility forms incorrectly. So I'm now kind of 17, 18, finishing college. I'm thinking, fuck, you know, now what? I'd kind of put all my eggs in, into that basket. Um, I didn't kind of have a plan B. So I started looking at things that I like to do. I started working in a local gym. So I now become a gym instructor, a personal trainer. I do this for a couple of years. And look, I wasn't that academic at school. You know, I, I enjoyed school uh, for the social aspects and um, uh, for playing football. So, you know, all the kind of books and literature that I was reading at school was always pressed upon me to read and not something that I wanted necessarily to read. It didn't, it didn't appeal to me. So when I was in the, in the gym, I started reading, but things that, that interested me. And as you get older, a little bit more um, mature, you start reading. And and for me, it was all kind of military, military history. And the Special Forces books in particular and the Andy McNabb books really, really spiked my interest in that world and the military. You know, I then go on to join the Marines and Special Forces. And looking back, that was quite, probably kind of a big uh, precursor for me in terms of joining the military and then Special Forces. So that was a kind of why. So everyone's like, why would you write a book? Well, actually, books inspired me to join the military and then further my career within Special Forces. You know, and I enjoyed those, those kind of books. But for me, I wanted to do something slightly different with my book. I wanted it to be, not just be an autobiography and stories about you know, the things that I, I'd done within the military, uh, or necessarily be a mindset, leadership, resilience, positive kind of book, because those books have been done, you know, and done very well by my counterparts, you know, Ant Middleton and Foxy and Ollie and Billy, all the guys have, have kind of owned that that kind of field and uh, done a great job. So what what was different about about the book, I thought, was, well, how, how can we sort of value add for other people that potentially leave the military like I did and go, well, now what? What the fuck can I do? And at the time, you know, you've actually acquired a lot of skills while you've been in these kind of positions and, you know, and, and in uh, public service and fire and, and police and, you know, all the military as well. You actually acquire a lot of skills that are applicable to business. And for me, it was about, well, how can I capture this and, and intertwine my story throughout the whole book in terms of helping people? And that's, and that's the basis of the book, The Hard Road Will Take You Home. It's kind of what the military elite teaches about endeavor and kind of next level success and how we can apply that. And it kind of broken down you know, through four chapters. It's kind of, you know, uh, the battle prep phase, okay, that in terms of that's a militarism, isn't it? You know, battle prep before we go on to a mission, you know, we break a mission down and how do we prepare and set ourselves up for success for that? And that's what I was trying to say. And within each chapter, I then kind of give a military example um, a personal example and then a business example and kind of then sort of end the chapter with kind of a, a debrief and, and uh, action points as well at the end so you know as we look you know for me that's that was the whole premise of the book how can I kind of um, impart the things that I've learned and that I feel are actually applicable to not just business um, and the military but also to your personal life as well so um, and for the most part you know I think we've done a, a pretty good job up until this point and it's different as well so 
um, yeah, it was uh, released in the UK on the on the second of November. It's it's, it's going really well, and, and a massive thank you to everybody who supported as well. I had the same, uh, and again, I can't claim claim everything for myself. I'm certainly not an author. Um, I, I, I can't claim that I sat down and locked myself in a room for four days and wrote this book. I had a huge amount of help from my ghostwriter, Matt Allen, um, who's incredible. You know, the amount of hours that we spent, you know, like this over the uh, over the phone or, or via a Zoom link and just talking about him sort of extracting information from me and stories and everything else. And, you know, he was a ghostwriter for Foxy and for NIMS and for, for other people as well, like Usain Bolt and bits and pieces. So I knew I was in good hands. It's then just trying to make it all make sense and, and come together. And, and for the most part, I think we've done a, a, a pretty good job of that. So, yeah, the, the book, The Hard Road Rule, will, will take you home. Is As you suggest, it's available in the U.S. as well. But I'm hoping it just provides more than just a, a military kind of touch and feel in terms of how people can apply the things that I've learned and lessons through life and business uh, as well. The term quiet professionals, I think, is, is a great term, but sometimes you can be too quiet and do a disservice to your profession. And the perfect example is the American Fire Service. When people in 2023 will say, why is there a fire engine on my medical call? You know, or I mean, just a, a number of things, you know, what are we buying you in the CS in the, in the store? What are we buying you thinking our tax, their tax money is going to, to our food, you know? So I think it's important for professions to tell their stories. And like you said, not all the stories, but I mean, it's, 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 it's funny because the, the classified stuff is almost irrelevant. The average person doesn't need to know which mountain you were on, who you were chasing, you know, it's the human experience. So I think you can do that without, you know, giving away things that shouldn't be given away. But also the other thing where, where our careers, our uh, professions parallel is, as you said, that transition out. It's amazing how many police officers go into security, how many firefighters just go to a, a paramedic college or a fire college and just teach, how many special operations, you know, special forces fires then go into contracting or you know close protection. But just like you touched on, and I'm really excited to read the book, we don't realize you know, the, the actual you know, soft skills, hard skills that we got can be applied in a thousand ways. And the real common denominator that I've found from people that transition from our professions into, you know, what's next is trying to find a way of giving back. Now, you know, you could argue that security is giving back, you know, if you're at the front of a store or something, but you can take that still that skill set that you have and do something incredible in the world. You're just not wearing a uniform anymore. So your service doesn't end. And I find that the catharsis, the people that transition healthily, they were they they're the service burns in their heart. So if they can find a way of giving back with that skill set, doesn't necessarily have to exactly match what they did in uniform. That seems to be the the superpower for the the military veteran or the first responder. I think so, and you can do that through through multiple you know ways as well. Especially now with access to information and and through dark as well. And it you know as we looked at this as me and Louis set up the business, it was all about what, who do we want to be? What's the mission? You know, what's the message? And it was you know one of our strap lines endeavor through adversity. It was all about being an aspirational brand, aspiring and inspiring people to get outside, to push themselves physically and mentally, to become the best version of themselves. So that you know, look. It's cliched, isn't it? If you look after yourself, first and foremost, you get yourself physically fit and mentally fit and resilient and robust, you have then have such a positive impact on everybody in your life and all the people that you touch. You know, it's, it's, it, it seems obvious, but... 
you know, for the most part, you know, books do this as well, you know, and they help people. And, and not everything, not every part of the book will, will talk to people and perhaps the way that you hope or think that it will. But if people can take one or two things from these books and through social media and, and through, uh, you know, inspiring people through a workout and, and things, because I do, I look at, you know, Instagram and I just follow the things that are positive and that I like and, you know, and just eradicate anything that's, that's bullshit and, and negative and not serving you, then... I get inspired by other people that I follow. You know, if I'm having a bad day or I don't feel like training, I see something, I'm like, shit, yeah. You know, like you're more Mark Cornrods and people. And I just think, shit, like that just inspires me to get out and, and motivates me. And there's little things from books that I still remember now and, and everything else. So, yeah, it's um, it, it was a, a, um, a nostalgic sort of process to write the book and I, I actually quite enjoyed it. But, you know, it, it was the best part of 16 to 18 months, you know, getting this book through, and rightly so, through the, the, the security cell and disclosure to make sure that there wasn't any, anything in there that was, you know, putting anybody that's currently still serving, you know, in, in any jeopardy or, or releasing anything or information that, that wasn't, you know, that shouldn't have been released. So, you know, finally we got it over the line um, and, and, and we are where we are. So, yeah, I'm excited to sort of see how it goes and, and um, I'm excited to hear your feedback as well, James. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more area and then go to some some closing questions. Again, when we spoke last time, the US was still in Afghanistan. Then since you know we had the uh, the withdrawal, a lot of people have had on the show that are Afghan themselves, you know, in Afghanistan and obviously a lot of veterans, that had a pretty jarring impact to a lot of people that, you know, lost brothers and sisters over there, lost limbs, lost their mental health. You know, I mean, there's a lot of cost, a huge cost, obviously, and then the families as well. What was your perception and your kind of, you know, your your friend circle's perception of that? Well, I, I, rather than me give my friend's sort of perception, I'd, I'd rather just give my kind of take on it and uh, for what it's worth. And I think, you know, since 2008 to probably 2014, you know, I had five operational tours in Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, I had some skin in the game, lost friends as well, uh, and fellow operators, you know, on tours and, and saw some pretty horrific things. You know, I saw the worst in humanity, but I don't look at it like that. I also saw some the very best in, in people in humanity as well, in terms of service and helping other people. I can't stand here today and say that it, it was all for nothing. I don't believe that, and I, and I don't buy into that, that narrative. You know, the job and the role that we were doing at that time was absolutely required and needed. And look at all the positives that it, it, it did have in terms of you can only help some, someone and some people, you know, to the best of your ability with everything you know and have at your disposal at, the, at that time, you know. And it's like, you know, in its simplest you know, kind of form if you break this down. It's, you know, you can run across and see a mug in somewhere or something that's not right. Afghanistan wasn't right. It needed help and it needed support and, and you know, across a wide spectrum of, of from government to, you know, policing to military to education, you know, all these kind of touch points, which we went in there with the right intentions and also to eradicate, you know, an oppressive um, a regime in terms of the Taliban. And, you know, for the most part, I feel like we 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 did that and, and it was mission success. But listen, at the end, when you know the way that you know the the, the, the forces and the military withdrew, I just really kind of I, I feel like we let them down, you know, uh, but also ourselves in terms of all the uh, energy and efforts and the blood, the sweat, the tears, and, and everything else that went into that place, you know. And I do think we had a net positive effect, but. 
you know, I think it's, we shouldn't look at it now and say, well, it's back to how it was, you know. I don't think it is back to how it was, you know, certainly in terms of how it's ruled, but in terms of who is, you know, controlling those those provinces, and etc. But, you know, I think it did have a positive effect for the most part on other people and at least gave people hope. What's the main thing that people need and want in life? And it's fucking hope, you know. And I think we enabled, for the most part, people to have hope and open their eyes to a different way of living and, uh, and operating throughout their daily lives. And, you know, it's, um, it, it's fucking horrendous, isn't it? The be- most part, the best part of 20 years, you know, and, and how much money and, and everything else that went into that place. It's, um, I try and always look for the positives in everything. And it's not because I'm blinded or anything else like that, but I just, I do generally feel like we were in there for the right reasons, you know, and, and doing the best that we could do and everybody else as well. And our partners and five I nations as well. So it was a real shame to see how it, how it ended um, and kind of how we kind of withdrew out of there. I think, I think we just let them down, let the people down uh, and for, for some parts, let ourselves down as well. Yeah, well, thank you, because it's your voices that we need to hear. You were the people that were there. And and, and the cl- question I normally ask, you know, when when we're talking about combat, I think I asked you in the, in the first one, you know, was what was some of the things that you witnessed as far as, um, you know, the, the horrors that were happening to the native people that you were there to take care of. So that was been a part of the job. And the other side of the question was the the kindness and compassion, which you touched on again, you know, the 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 beautiful people that you were there to protect and you were serving alongside. So I heard so many stories of differences that were made. Um, but then, you know, I've, I've had people, you know, that, as you said, it, it shook them because they gave everything to protect those people. And then the way that we, we were withdrawn and then the Afghan people now, I mean, they're, they're in the middle of a winter, they're starving, they're, they're, you know, freezing to death. I mean, and then you have the Taliban as well. So, um, Again, like COVID conversation, now we have an opportunity to assess and be like, if we could do it again, how how would we do it differently? And it seems like a lot of your community, American, Australian, um, UK, there seems to be a kind of agreement that if we'd gone in more with you know focusing on on your community, go in there, take out the targets that need to be taken out, shut down the training camps, and then get out again, that it would have you know would have not seen them like an occupation and create more, more enemies, et cetera, et cetera. So for you personally, you're king for a day, you get to strategize how we would do it. What would you have done differently? Oh, geez. I think that's, that's such a different, you know, and, and even if you're king, you'd need to be king for longer than a day and, and you'd need more than a fucking <laughs> magic wand. I feel, you know, it's so complex and this is the reason, you know, you can't fix something like this. And I spoke about it earlier. In fact, Foxy was in the, the gym earlier. Uh, we were training and we were talking about, you know, Gaza and all the kind of fucking atrocities and everything else that's happening there. But it's not just this, wherever the, the fucking media tend to shine their, their gaze. You know, if you look at the, the Congo as well and, and everywhere else in Yemen and all these fucking places where there's it's just a, a madness. The world is a madness and you cannot be an ideology. You can't be a religion. You know, you just can't. And trying to come in and and uh, and, and add your values um, or impart and impose your value systems onto other people, it doesn't work. And I think that's what we tried to do. And and, and for the most part, and we did it from the, with the right intention, you know. And, and intentions, everything, isn't it? You know. And uh, but I think even if you're working for a day, you'd, you'd hope for peace, wouldn't you? You'd just say, listen, you know, forget all this other stuff, and you know, your imaginary person is better than my imaginary person, you know, and everything else. What's wrong with just being a good person? But unfortunately, 
the world is not full of good people. There are bad people in the world that want to do harm to good people. And thankfully, there are people that are willing to step up to the plate and protect the people that are innocent or can't protect themselves. And that's what it comes down to. Ultimately, there are people that are damaged, that are that are uh, that are evil. Um, you know, and someone's definition of evil is different to somebody else's. And then, you know, where do you step in? You know, you can, and it's simplest form. You look at a, a playground fight between kids, and when does it become not a fair fight anymore? You know, in terms of how many people are involved, is the kid bigger, bigger, older, stronger? When do you step in? When's the right time to step in? Who makes that decision? Who makes that call? And but ultimately, if you could just shake the kids fighting and just say, just get along and be nice, isn't that? Isn't that? Wouldn't that be a great thing? But listen, I'm a realist, and that and that is not how the world is shaped up. Beautiful. Well, again, thank you for your perspective. So, last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find Through Dark and and you online. What's next for Through Dark? You know, you you had this amazing cold weather line. Nims wore it in some of his expeditions. You know, what are you projecting to be exciting products to look for, growth, etc. In the next five or ten years? Yeah. So I mean, uh, we, I can take over the world, James. You know, I think for <laughs> for us, um, you know, six years in now, we're in such an incredible position, and and you know, as the business grows, we get access to better people. So. You know, what is the definitive thing that has made Through Dark a success? It's the people, the people that we have involved with Through Dark that are working with us to ultimately push and drive Through Dark to success. And, you know, um, we're about 40 staff strong now. Uh, I spoke earlier about me and Louis spinning plates on our own. and uh, But now we're in a, in a good position where we have, you know, the team is growing and we've got incredibly gifted people within, within the business across brand and product. And, you know, there's people, product and process and everything else. And the wave is growing. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know we're excited to see where this takes us. You know, but we want to take it all the way. You know, we want to be recognised as the most technical, um, uh, most authentic, incredible outdoor clothing brand. You know, in the world. For us, in terms of where we wanted to be, you know, we're, we're authentic. We design, develop, and test the, the kit ourselves, myself and Louis. But as the team grows, you know, we get access to better fabric mills, better uh, factories, uh, and everybody else as well. So the, the company is moving in a fantastic um, kind of trajectory at the moment, and we're excited to see where the future takes us. You know, we've got ideas. We've just released um, a Ghost Range, which is for exclusively available to. Uh, the military and, um, and and police as well. So we've got those kind of avenues working on at the moment and more kind of investment from other people. The company's growing, people, uh, everything's improving. So I'm really excited. You know, we're in this for the, for the long haul. You know, we've got a sort of five to 10-year vision and goal of kind of where we want to be. But, you know, uh, America's probably the next one, isn't it, after the UK and, and Europe and everything else and then into Asia and everything else. So um, we're excited, excited to see where we can take this and, and support more people and more endeavors as well. So where are the best places to find Through Dark online? And then what about yourself on social media? Yeah, so Through Dark online, it, it is just uh, Google search. It's www.throughdark.com. Uh, we ship as well internationally uh, and across our social media platforms. It's Through Dark again, T H R U D A R K. For mine personally, it's Staz Through Dark, S T A Z T H R U D A R K. Staz Through Dark and Louis as well as Louis uh, Through Dark. But it's the usual social media uh, platforms. Uh, but be careful once you click on any Through Dark ad, our uh, little wizards and back end geeks will be uh, attacking you with uh, <laughs> with all the the usual spam. <laughs> And adverts and everything else, with which I make no apologies. So, yeah, it's, it's the websites and bits and pieces, mate. But, yeah, thank you.
Beautiful, mate. Well, I, again, I want to thank you so much. I mean, it was a great conversation with you and Louis. And like I said, if anyone wants to listen to that, it was episode 283. Um, this one has been a great, you know, great catch up. I mean, obviously we got to to break bread in Dubai and here we are now having this conversation, but I'm excited post pandemic, you know, as people are starting to ramp up and hopefully the the understanding of a little suffering in our lives, exercise, daylight, community that aligns perfectly with what you're doing. So I want to thank you so much for taking your time and coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it, James. Thank you.